morning, everybody, or good evening, depending upon what part of the world you're in. Okay, so we'll start, um, as usual, with the recitations. And so to remember to create this whole scene around us. We're not just chanting to empty space, but, you know, to really think we're in the presence of the holy beings. And that as we uh, do the chanting, light flows from them into us. Uh, when we do the mandala offering, we think that we're offering our, uh, our universe and everything in it, especially the things that we're attached to, that we cling to, be they objects or people, that we offer these to the three jewels yeah, in, when we request for teachings, okay? So we don't just show up kind of empty-handed uh, as we usually do as consumers with, okay, well, I'm here to take the teachings. Uh, come on, uh, give them to me. Uh, we, you know, it's a whole different mental set that we approach the teachings with, as we talked about yesterday. Yeah. So, uh, and remember to remember that, remember to remember, yes, uh, that we're surrounded by all these sentient beings. And, uh, you know, that they're all very happy that we are practicing because it helps them in this life if we practice it, practice the Dharma, and by uh, gradually purifying our mind, gaining the realizations, we will be able to help them more and more in future lifetimes as well. And uh, to be able to give more than temporary assistance, but really to be able to give spiritual assistance so that uh, sentient beings can progress on their own to nirvana and full awakening. Let's take a moment and do the visualization. You don't have to see everything clearly. It's uh, what you want to really have is the feeling that you're in the presence of uh, the awakened ones and the bodhisattvas, the arhats, and all of our spiritual mentors. Then let's generate our motivation. Have an attitude of seeing ourselves as sick people because clearly not everything is wonderful in our lives and in our world.
going to the Buddha as our spiritual physician who diagnoses us with a severe case of samsara. The causes of that samsara, which lie within us, ignorance, the afflictions, the polluted karma, And the Buddha prescribes the medicine of the Dharma to us so that we can get well. But we need to take the Dharma, take the medicine, apply the Dharma, and just as taking or one or two pills won't cure a disease, we can't just do a short meditation here and there, but must really integrate the Dharma medicine in our lives, nourishing our heart and mind with the Dharma just as we nourish our body with food. as we take the Dharma and see the change in ourselves, and as we understand the Dharma deeper, our respect for the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha increase. If we don't take the medicine and we continue with our usual outlook on life. Our respect for the three jewels will not increase. Our respect for objects of attachment will increase, though. So we really have to turn our mind to the Dharma, seeing it as something of vital importance in our life. And when we do that, then of course we want to dedicate so that the Dharma exists in our world, in all worlds, in a very pure form forever. So with that state of mind, that approach to listening to teachings. It's not too difficult to generate compassion. Because already when the mind is in virtue, then we shift it to another, to cultivating another uh, virtuous quality. It's not as hard as if our mind is stuck in non-virtue, and then we want to cultivate some kind of good quality. And from the virtuous mind of compassion, 
we see that if we really care with sen- about sentient beings, really want them to be free of suffering, then we have to act as our as President Biden said this last week, prayers are good, but it is time for action. So we act by generating the bodhicitta, which will engage us in the six perfections and lead us to full awakening. So with that kind of motivation, let's listen this morning and share the Dharma together. It's true, isn't it? When our mind is in a peaceful state and there's some virtuous notion, then it's much easier to contemplate the Dharma and generate other good qualities. Whereas if we turn up at teachings and we're annoyed and we're frustrated and we're dissatisfied, then it's very hard to really pay attention to the teachings, much less to generate any feeling of compassion because... Uh, you know, emotions like like anger and irritation and such are totally the opposite of compassion. Okay, so we're, we're starting on chapter one, the self, the four truths, and their 16 ac- attributes. So the photo on the opposite side is showing the kind of attitude we have approaching the teachings, what His Holy dis- described in uh, his introduction. Yeah. And I think that's one reason why doing a hundred thousand prostrations is one of the preliminary practices. Because when you have your nose on the ground in the dirt, you don't feel arrogant. <laughs> you know, you're essentially saying, I need to open up and purify and clean my life up, clean my heart out. Um, yeah. So prostrations really, uh, when you do them physically, they give you that feeling, yeah? And of course, at the same time, you're imagining light from the Buddhas coming into you and purifying and bringing the good qualities. Okay, so let's start. So the four truths of the Aryas are four facts that aryas, beings who directly see the ultimate nature of all persons and phenomena, know as true. Okay, so that's why not four noble truths, four truths of the aryas. Yeah, and we know they're true because beings who who directly perceive the nature of reality perceive these things as true. Okay, so they're not fake news. Uh, and they're not alternative facts. Uh, they weren't made up by somebody to, um, you know, publicize 
some new, uh, you know, app that if you listen to it, it will uh, bring you to full awakening, okay? These are four things that the Arya beings know from their own personal experience as true, and they're sharing this with us not because they want money or recognition or, you know, status or something like that. Yeah, can you imagine an app with the with the four doubled <laughs> the four truths? Yeah. For your you ninety-nine-ninety-nine, yeah. Each noble truth, ninety-nine, ninety-nine, for you, special price. Well, the first truth, truth of dukkha, nobody likes. We'll give you a that one's only eighty-nine ninety-nine. Yeah because we got to increase sales here. It's not like that. So the, uh, these four truths establish the fundamental framework of the Buddha Dharma, so a good understanding of them is essential. In this chapter, we will look at the four truths in general, and in subsequent chapters, we will examine each one in detail. Okay? So um, this really is is an excellent structure for a spiritual practice. And essentially all religions have their own version of the four truths. Yeah. If you take Christianity, you know, what is dukkha? It is a state of estrangement from God living here in, in our world. What's the cause of dukkha? That one gets a little bit dicey, okay? Um, is it the apple? Yeah, those apples did it again, huh? Um, the apples, the greed in the mind, but God created sentient beings and created them greedy. So, so how does that work out? Okay, the cessation is a rebirth in heaven, okay? And the path there is doing good deeds and keeping the Christian version of uh, ethical conduct, which is similar to some of the Buddhist version, but it has some differences as well. Okay. Uh, so every faith has that kind of uh, structure in one way or another. So we're going to be learning the Buddhist uh, view of that. Okay. Uh, so the four truths describe the unawakened and the awakened experiences of this merely designated self. So to begin with, I would like to share some reflections on the self. The person who is born in cyclic existence practices the path and attains awakening. Now, some people at this point may say, well, I just, I've been reading Buddha's things, and they say there's no self. And that we meditated, meditate on selflessness. So why is His Holiness talking about there being a self who was born in samsara, practices the path, and attains awakening? Okay, why? Well, because in Buddhism, we aren't negating 
the existence of the conventionally existent, merely designated self. We are negating that self being inherently existent. We are negating an inherently existent person. Okay, so there's differences. If we were to negate even the self, the dependently arising self, then we would fall into nihilism and think that nothing exists. If we didn't negate the inherently existent self, we would fall into absolutism, uh, which is the extreme that we're in right now, grasping everything as having some kind of independent essence, which it actually doesn't have. Okay, But by saying that sentence, His Holiness is already establishing there is a self yeah, that is born, that practices the path, that attains liberation. Okay, But our idea of the self right now is incorrect. Yeah, we have to change that. We have to do away with that. And instead realize that there is simply a designated self, not an independent self. And we'll go into what that means a little bit as we continue on. Okay, so here are three questions about the self. I enjoy interfaith and, oh, in the book, whenever it says I, unless it has children in parentheses after it, the I refers to his holiness. So I enjoy interfaith gatherings and appreciate the genuine in-depth dialogue and cooperation that result from them. At one such gathering in Amritsar, India, each participant was asked three questions. Is there a self? Is there a beginning to the self? And is there an end to the self? Now, it's interesting to think, oh, if I were representing Buddhism in an international gathering and they wanted each of us to speak to these three questions, would I be able to do that? Yeah. And what what is my uh, view now about is there a self and a beginning and an end to the self? Yeah. So we usually say, is there a self? Yes, I am here. I am here. Okay. Uh, don't represent Buddhism with that kind of idea. <laughs> okay. Because that entails the grasping at the inherently existent self, which does not exist. Okay. So we're going to see here, His Holiness is going to share his thoughts, how he answered the question, is there a self? So he starts out, most non-Buddhists assert an independent self, an Atman or a soul that takes rebirth. What leads them to say this? Although we know that our adult bodies did not exist at the time of our births, when we say, at the time I was born, da 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 my parents were living here, or, you know, whatever it is, 
when we say that, we feel that there was a self that was born and that this same self exists today. Yeah? Don't you? Yeah? I remember being in, you know, kindergarten and Johnny throwing sand at me in my eyes. That I feels the same I as today. Okay? And we think Johnny is exactly the same person today as he was uh, at four and a half when he threw that sand in our eyes. Okay? We also say, today my mind is calm, indicating that our mind is different today than yesterday when it was disturbed. Hmm. So is this self the same as the one before? Is it different than the one before? But we feel the I, and even though we say, you know, my mind is calm today, yesterday, you know, or I am calm today, yesterday I was upset. We feel, we still feel the I is the same as yesterday's I, even though we indicate that the I has changed. Because yesterday it was upset, today it's calm. Okay. When we see a flower, we think, I see. And it feels like there is a real person who sees it. Okay. When we get an award, I won an award. Yeah. There's definitely this feeling of a person at that time, isn't there? Look, I have an Emmy or an Oscar. They gave it to me. Look. <laughs> yeah. There's a sense of an eye. Yeah. When we don't win, <laughs> like that, and we fall apart. <laughs> Then, also, there's a strong feeling of I. I failed. I wasn't good enough. Or, they are prejudiced against me. I actually deserve the Oscar, not them. Okay. Either, whether we say we blame ourselves, I failed, I wasn't good enough, or blame the other people for being biased, in both those, there's a strong feeling of I, isn't there? Yeah. And that I is quite independent. It's not you. Yeah. You cannot understand my experience. Yeah. But you should still have compassion for me. But Well, that gets into a whole other topic. Of course we can understand people's experience. Not exactly as theirs is, but close enough because we're all in the same boat. Okay. In all these cases, although we know that the body and mind change, we still have the sense of an enduring I that is the owner of the body and mind don't we? Right there, when we look at that, there's some contradiction, isn't there? There's a feeling of an enduring I, 
But there's also the feeling of an I that changes depending upon what's happening with the body and mind. So is there an enduring I or is there a changing I? Or are there two eyes? One that is an independent Atman or soul that doesn't change and one that changes when the body-mind changes. You know, I'm in pain to I feel well. Yeah. So right there, when we look, we can see there's something that is not, uh, there's discordance there between how we see ourselves. Hmm? This is the, uh, okay, so we feel that there's a sense of an enduring I that is the owner of the body and mind. Okay. So sometimes we feel I am the body and mind. Like when we say I feel sick, it's kind of based on the body. Yeah, the body feels sick, so we say I feel sick. Then we say I'm thinking yeah, because the mind is thinking. Is the I that's thinking different from the mind that's thinking or the same as the mind that's thinking? Is the I that doesn't feel well the same as the body that doesn't feel well or different from it? Okay, we don't examine these kinds of things in, in our life, you know, but we certainly have all these different notions and assumptions about what the I is that we never really can see as notions and assumptions or as misconceptions, as graspings. Yeah. So this sense of an enduring I is the basis for believing there is a permanent, unitary, independent self that goes to heaven or hell or is reborn in another body after death. From this comes the conclusion that there must be an unchanging, independent I that is present throughout our lives and remains the same although the mental and physical aggregates change. This I is the agent of all actions, such as walking and thinking. Okay? So His Holiness is tracing how the idea in different religions of a permanent, unitary, independent Atman or soul arises. Okay? So we have this feeling of an, of an enduring I, we have a feeling that the body and mind change, but the feeling of an enduring eye is quite strong. Yeah. And so, yeah, well, what happens to this eye when I die? It goes to heaven or hell, or it gets reborn, or, you know, whatever else. Okay. And then we really solidify that there's really a soul, something that is the essence of me. Okay, and uh, this remains the same throughout my life without changing at all. Okay, 
even though my body and mind change. So we're, we're satisfied with the contradiction. <laughs> okay? So this is how the idea of one kind of self evolves, a self that is permanent, unitary, and um, independent. So although we'll go into this a little bit more later, just to introduce these ideas, permanent here uh, does not mean our usual English definition of permanent. In English, usually permanent means it, in, it's eternal, it never ends. Here, permanent does not mean that, okay? Things can be permanent, but not eternal. Here, permanent means it doesn't change from one moment to the next. It's something static, okay? Unitary means it's one thing. It doesn't have parts. It's monolithic. And independent means it's independent from the body and mind. So how do we resolve that contradiction of an enduring I, yet the body and mind changes, is we say there's a soul, there's an Atman, that's independent of the body and mind. And that soul or Atman gets preserved when we die, and we're reborn in heaven or hell, or whatever state there is in between, or we get reborn. But there's this feeling of a soul that gets reborn, you know, a, a permanent, unchanging self. Okay? So that is one level of what we call the object of negation in the meditation on emptiness. It's actually the coarsest level of our ways of misconceiving the self or grasping at the self. Okay. And many of us were taught uh, the, about this self when we were youngsters. Yeah? Just as, uh, you know, especially in, in theistic religions, it's quite strong, you know, whether it's Hinduism or Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Okay, all are based on this idea of there's, you know, this self that doesn't change, that was created by some divine being, is unitary without parts, and is independent of the aggregates. Okay? And so we learn that when we're little. We believe it. Yeah, this is what we call an acquired affliction or an acquired view in the sense that it's, it's acquired because we learned it from false philosophies or false psychologies. Okay. And innate grasping, okay, comes with us from life to life. We don't have to learn it. Okay. The innate grasping actually lies behind this acquired grasping because the innate grasping is that one of an enduring self. Okay. Then we develop a theology or a, you know, a, an explanation for that feeling and, you know, invent the idea 
of a permanent in, uh, unitary independent self and teach that to others and reconfirm it in ourselves. Okay, so, you know, and especially what we're taught very young, we believe, don't we? And so sometimes this notion of this kind of self is floating around in our consciousness and we aren't even aware of it. Okay. And it, uh, yeah, it... uh, it comes all the time, you know, quite a bit, actually. Yeah, Even when you're Buddhist, we talk about this, uh, this spiritual master died and was reborn as so-and-so. And we think like there's a permanent soul. You know, we think first there's an inherently existent person. But then we go to, oh, There's a permanent unitary person. And we expect the next rebirth to have the same kind of personality as the rebirth we knew. Yeah, forget that. (laughs) Okay, so... um, Yeah, so then we think that this permanent, partless, independent self is the agent of all actions, such as walking and thinking. Although, actually, we know that a person who walks and a person who thinks is going to be changing moment to moment. Or sometimes we do separate it out, and we think, okay, there's this soul or self, yeah, and it goes from one life to the next, And then there's this other self that changes and does all the daily life activities. Yeah, and we'll see it kind of like that. You know, either there's two selves or there's one self that is sometimes permanent, partless, and independent. And then it changes to become impermanent and functioning. But something that is permanent cannot change to become impermanent. So, you know, our whole feelings about this and many of our conceptions as well are really, they're confused. And this is why His Holiness, you know, if you've been listening to his talks over the last year, you know, what does he emphasize each talk again and again, no matter who he's talking to? Buddhism depends on reasoning and logic. We have to employ these. We have to think about things. We have to test them out. We don't just believe because somebody told us. Yeah, again and again, you know. And so much so that sometimes when he starts, you can almost repeat it with him. Yeah, but the thing is, do we really use it? Do we use our our analytic mind to really think about things? Or do we just mouth the words, but in our day-to-day life, uh, it's, you know, emotional upheaval as usual, yeah, or preconceptions and assumptions as usual. While both Buddhists and non-Buddhists accept the existence of the self, 
our ideas of what the self is differ radically. Most non-Buddhists accept the existence of a permanent, unchanging soul or independent self, while Buddhists refute it. So he says most Buddhists, because there, it seems like there's one Samkhya school, one Hindu school that is uh, non-theistic, but others that are. Although no Buddhist philosophical school asserts uh, a permanent, unitary, independent self, these schools have various ideas of what the self is. Okay, so even amongst Buddhism, when you talk about the set, the tenant systems. They say there's no permanent, partless, independent one, but what the self is, many ideas. So some say it's the mental consciousness, some say it's the continuum of consciousness, some say it's the collection of aggregates, and some say it's the uh, I that is merely designated. So there's a bunch of different ideas, and as we progress through the series, we will investigate all these different ideas. The Prasangika Madhyamaka, which is generally accepted as the most refined system of tenets, says the self is merely designated independence on the body and mind. Because the self is merely imputed, we can say, I am young or old, and I think and feel. If the person were a completely different entity from the body and mind, it would not change when either the body or the mind changes. Okay, so the Prasangikas say, hmm, there's a merely designated self. What does that mean? You know, and it's designated independence in dependence on three different words, not independent on, you know, in dependence on it, the body and mind, which are its basis of designation, okay? So what that means is there's a body and a mind, yeah, and just depending on them, yeah, there's the conceptual thought of a person, and we give the name I, or person, or self. Aside from that way of existing, from the prasangika view, there is nothing that is the self. Why? Because when we investigate the body, when we investigate the mind, we cannot find anything in the body and mind that that we can identify as a real self. Okay. We may feel there's a real me, but just because we feel something doesn't mean it exists. Okay. This is a big shocker, isn't it? because we rely a lot on our feelings. And sometimes we even call our thoughts feelings. Okay? I feel like you don't respect me. Is like you don't respect me a feeling, or is that a thought? 
Which is it? It's a thought, isn't it? Yeah. I feel happy. That's a feeling. Happy is a feeling. Okay. I feel like this country is falling apart. Is that a feeling or a thought? It's a thought. I feel like I fail. Is that a feeling or a thought? It's a thought. But we confuse feeling and thought. And then we say, because I feel it, that is my experience. It must be true. Okay. So when we suffer from self-doubt and we say, you know, I'm a failure or I can never succeed at what I'm doing, that is actually a thought. But when people try and tell us it's a thought and it's a thought that we made up, it's not a feeling, we say, and, and, and that person says, therefore, you don't need to think that thought. You can think another thought about yourself. We say, forget it, you don't understand me. I'm really poor quality, I'm really this, you know, I'm hopeless. Don't we? Yeah? So we're confusing feelings and thoughts. And that that's quite poisonous. Mm -hmm. So because what the self is, exists by being merely designated or imputed. Yeah. There's an, uh, how do you say, uh, a lack of concreteness about this self. We cannot pinpoint it. Yeah. And we, of course, want to be able to pinpoint everything. But you cannot actually pinpoint this self because it exists by being merely designated and, you know, given a name. Aside from that, there's nothing you can find that is it. But that also is what allows us to say, I am walking and I am thinking, even though the body is walking and the mind is thinking. Okay? So because this self cannot be isolated, there's some flexibility in there. So the self can become the agent doing various actions. Okay. So then the second question that they were asked at this interfaith conference, I think it must have been fascinating to be there and hear the different responses that people gave. So the second question is, is there a beginning to the self? Okay, so if you've been raised in, in the Judaic Christian Islamic tradition, the Abrahamic religion, yes, there was a beginning to the self and there was a beginning to the world. Why? Because the Bible starts out in the beginning. And the Bible said it, so we believe it. Okay, that's not how Buddhism approaches uh, its own scriptures. Okay, we're not encouraged 
to say, well, the Buddha said that in the sutra, therefore I believe. Yeah, we're encouraged to understand why did the Buddha say that? What does that really mean? Is my idea from reading those words a correct idea? Or did I misinterpret what those words mean? So those who believe in an external creator assert an autonomous intelligence that does not depend on causes and conditions. Okay, so whether you're talking about Ishvara or God or Allah or whatever you call it, yeah, it's an, we usually think of it as a self-sufficient intelligence Okay, that was not created. Doesn't depend on causes and conditions. It was always there. And it's permanent and doesn't change. Okay. This being said, okay, those who believe in the creator um, say, yeah, that that creator created the world and the sentient beings in it. So for many people, the notion that God created life fosters the feeling of being close to God and willingness to follow God's advice to be kind and refrain from harming others. Their belief in a creator spurs them to live ethically and to help others. So here His Holiness, you know, explains one of the key propositions of other religions that is different from Buddhist assertions. But he doesn't start out with criticizing it and saying, you know, this thing doesn't exist. He says, for people who believe this, it works and it's good for them. Yeah, they think God created me, so I'm close to God and God teaches me to be kind and compassionate, to forgive, to not kill and steal and, you know, harm other beings and lie and so on. And I, I try and be a good person because God created me and God gave me these instructions. And so for those people, it really helps them to, to keep good ethical conduct, to develop a sense of compassion and forgiveness for others and to to, uh, you know, have to lead a good life. And for those people, it works. So His Holiness is not saying that just because what he believes and what others believe in terms of a creator is different, it doesn't mean that, that all those people should, you know, are heretics and must become Buddhas, otherwise they're damned. He's, he's respecting the other religions and saying that those religions do benefit people. And so as Buddhists, we should respect all those people from other traditions. And needless to say, we should respect all the other Buddhist traditions as well. Okay. So this, I think, is something quite unique about Buddhism, is uh, we do not say that we are the best religion for everyone. The best is always given in context. 
So something may be the best for one person, but not the best for another person. Just like in choosing food, yeah, some people eat gluten and some people don't eat gluten. Okay, you can't say one is better than the other for everybody. It depends on the individual's body. So the same thing with people's way of thinking. Yeah, people will have different way of thinking. And uh, if their way of thinking helps them to become a good person, then we have to respect that and appreciate that. Okay? Yeah. Sadly, what often happens is that people do not follow the teachings of their own religion. And they see their religion uh, like we see a sports team. We root for our sports team, yeah, whether it plays well or plays bad or anything, you know. I am a, uh, here we have a Red Sox fan, right there in our own monastery. Yeah, a Red Sox fan. And, you know, it's Red Sox, top to bottom, only the Red Sox. The Red Sox are always the best. Everybody should be a Red Sox fan, okay? Yeah, and she even wears red socks, as do all of us here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> and she has a red tattoo. It's a what? It's a what? It's a red socks tattoo. Okay. <laughs> you put socks, red socks on your arm. <laughs> I thought socks go on your feet. <laughs> so, you know, so some people see religion as my religion is the best. Everybody should be my religion. And if you're not, you know, there's some pretty bad results that await you. So there's a threat in there as well. Okay. In Buddhism, we don't think like that, okay? There's no threat involved, and people are free to think what they like. And we respect people who could keep good ethical conduct and are compassionate and kind, you know? Um, and that's one thing, when I look at Joe Biden, I can see, you know, he has a very deep belief in God, and you can see how centering that is for him and how it really uh, sustains him, especially when he has to be the comforter-in-chief after mass shootings and so on. But, um, like I said, some people don't follow the precepts of their own religion. They just root for their own religion. You know, and adapt a uh, a very fundamentalist view of their own religion, and that uh, brings discord. You know, I was a history major uh, in college, and <laughs> studying history was one of the things, you know, that made me stop believing in God, because 
I realized, especially in European history, every generation, people were killing themselves in the name of God. Now, of course, that's not God's fault if God exists, but people who misconstrue their own religious uh, assertions then can become uh, quite intolerant. And I've always felt, if I can go on, I go on asides a lot in teachings, that all the fundamentalists of whatever variety they are, they actually think very much alike. Yeah, the thought process is very similar. It's just what they are fundamentalist about differs. And so they fight and kill each other about the thing they're fundamental about. But the whole attitude of a fundamentalist doesn't matter what kind they are. You know, they're so similar. And all of them don't understand, you know, their own religion very well. Yeah. Of course, they would disagree with me. That's okay. Okay, some faiths, such as Jainism and Samkhya, do not assert a creator, but I do not know if they believe the Atman has a beginning. Okay, so he's talking there about other Indian religions. A repeated theme in Buddhism is dependent arising, one aspect of which is that functioning things arise due to causes and conditions. Okay. When explaining the 12 links of dependent origination, which describe how we're born into samsara and how we uh, become free of samsara, the Buddha said, because of this, that exists. Because this has arisen, that arises. So you find this in all the Buddhist traditions, okay? The whole idea of causality. And it's a very uh, fundamental principle in Buddhism. And it's, uh, I think, one of the basis for the dialogue between Buddhists and scientists, which has gone on for years and is really uh, quite beneficial because both Buddhists and scientists talk about causality, you know, and that things depend on causes. They don't happen out of nowhere. Well, sometimes the mathematicians get into ideas of randomness, but um, we'll get to that later, okay? Do tech people believe in randomness? No? Okay. Good. Um, okay, so because of this, that exists, points out, that phrase, points out uh, that things come into existence due to causes and conditions. They do not appear without a cause. If something has no causes, what makes it arise? Can you postulate something that comes into existence that arose without a cause? Okay. If you posit, well, the universe was created by God, then God was the cause. 
Yeah. Then you have to get into, well, what created God? I'll leave that to others to figure out. Okay, so things do not appear without a cause. If something has no causes, what makes it arise? If things do not depend on causes and conditions, why does a seed grow into a plant in the spring but not in the winter? Okay, so the seed may be the cause, but we also need cooperative conditions. Okay, if there's no cooperative conditions, why does the seed, why doesn't the seed sprout in the snow? Yeah, why doesn't the seed sprout in, when it's in a rock? Or in the sky? Yeah, it needs certain conditions to sprout. It doesn't just sprout without those conditions. Okay. If our lunch came into being without a cause, it would arise without groceries, pots, or cooks. That would be great, wouldn't it? You know, after this morning we just go in and there's lunch. And, you know, no food offerings, nobody cooking, nobody peeling vegetables you know, vegetables, no, you know, and the dishes could get washed also. It wouldn't depend on causes and conditions. So nobody would need to wash dishes or mop the floor or put the dishes away. They would just self-clean. Yeah. But that isn't how things work, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, everything, the body, the mind, and the external universe depends on causes and conditions. Okay, so we can agree on that, right? When we talk about it here, everybody agree that things depend on causes and conditions? Okay, now, if you get COVID or you get some very ill, you become very ill, what's one of the first things you, th you think? Why me? Okay? And the thought behind why me is, I didn't do anything. This happened spontaneously without any causes and conditions. Because if somebody said, well, you got COVID. I mean, this is a perfect example from the super spreader um, uh, when they nominated um, the new Supreme Amy Court Barrett. Justice and Amy Barrett. Amy, Amy Barrett. Barrett, yeah, when they nominated her, there was a super spreader. So people who got sick from COVID, why me? And if somebody said to them, it's because you didn't wear a mask, you didn't keep distance from other people, so there were lots of COVID uh, you know, viruses around and you inhaled them and that's why you got sick, these people would say no. You know, because, if, and so if somebody said, therefore, people should wear masks, they should social distance, say, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not social distancing. That's a bunch of hooey that somebody made up to scare us. 
So it's interesting, isn't it? You know, why me? Somebody tells you the causes and you say, no. <laughs> Somebody tells you to alter your behavior, no. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah? And so when we really look at how we think as human beings, you see that we don't think very clearly at all. Yeah? And so this is one of the first things that Buddhism is trying to get us to do, is to really think clearly. Yeah? And especially about cause and effect. Yeah? So on one level, we believe in cause and effect. And parents tell their children to study because you need to study to get good grades. And you need good grades to get into a, a good college. But then sometimes good grades don't get you into a good college. There's other factors at play too that nobody wants to talk about. Okay, and when people talk about those other factors in play, other people get very upset and say, no, you know, racism, racism is not part of the condition that conditions whether we accept people to our, our uh, university or our school or whatever it is. Okay, so it's so interesting, isn't it? We accept certain causes and conditions and... Other ones that don't agree with our views or our liking or our emotional disposition, we reject those causes and conditions and say that they either don't exist or they exist but they're not at play here. And we think we're smart. Yeah. As human beings, don't we? We think we're so smart and so clever. Okay, so because uh, this has arisen, that arises, illustrates that causes like their results are impermanent. So the first phrase, because of this, that exists, exists uh, explains that things arise dependent on causes and conditions. The second phrase, because this has arisen, that arises illustrates that causes and results are impermanent, that they change. Okay, now how does that sentence illustrate it? Because this has arisen means something has arisen and it has ceased. That arises. Okay, so because the, ca the cause arose and the cause disintegrated, something new came into existence. Without the cause disintegrating, the new thing could not come into existence. Okay, so if causes did not change, they would continue to exist even after producing their results. Okay? So this is the theme of I want my cake and I want to eat it too. I want the cause to exist and I also want it to produce something new. Okay? But causes do not continue to exist 
when they bring their result. Now, somebody may say, well, the cause transforms into the result as if the cause kind of, there's a feeling like the cause is still there in the result. It just transformed. Yeah. But no, the cause as it was initially had com completely ceased for the result to come into existence. It doesn't mean that the cause is going along, da 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 and then boom, at one moment it ceases, and the very next moment, independent of the cause, a new result arises. No, it's not like that. It's not like, uh, you know the old motion picture um, films? Each was a different frame, and each frame was different than the other frame. But one frame wasn't the cause of the next frame. The two frames were created independent, you know, of each other. So it's not like that. It's just a continuum that is ever-changing, never remaining the same in the next moment. Okay? Because if the causes didn't change then they would continue to exist even after producing their results. Then somebody says, but what about if part of the cause remains the same and part of it changes? Remember when we studied Pramnavartika? These are the kind of arguments that came up again and again. Yeah, And our mind may, may think like that too. Okay, well, yeah. The, the seed didn't completely change to produce the sprout. Yeah, it transformed because you can see that the seed is still present, except now it has something growing out of it. So the cause still exists at the time of the result. Yeah, easy to think like that, isn't it? Yeah. But actually, the seed as it was before the sprout came and the casing of the seed that remains after it sprouted are different things, aren't they? And they change moment by moment. And the seed as it was before does not exist in the same way when the, when, after the sprout exists, okay? We, we often think, you know, um, our legacy is having children. It's a way in which we continue to exist even after we die. Yeah. Because we think, you know, it, it's a bloodline or our, our, you know, our, our DNA exists. Yeah. So it's kind of like, that's my legacy. You know, I may die, but I still remain. So the cause dies, but the cause is still there. I'm still in my children. Yeah. And seeing children as a, um, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, parents really want their children to succeed because it's like my children are part of me. If they succeed, I'm succeeding. It, it's, you know, the mind is not, 
you know, you can look in that and find some definite thoughts underlying it. But most of the time we don't look at what those thoughts are. But it's still kind of the idea as if the cause doesn't totally go out of existence. Okay. But then when you say, uh, well, then we still must be apes. Yeah, because human bodies transformed from apes through evolution into human bodies. So there still must be the continuum of that cause. Then we say, no, you know, I'm not a monkey. <laughs> yeah. I may act like a monkey sometimes, but I'm not a monkey. Yeah. So it's just how we think is sometimes quite mixed up. Okay. So it is not possible for, um, oh, wait a minute. However, for a result to arise, its cause must cease. For an apple tree to grow, the apple seed must cease. It is not possible for a permanent creator or prior intelligence to create the universe and the beings in it without itself changing. So the whole process of results arising means that the cause must change. Changing means the cause is impermanent. Okay? Impermanent means that it's depending on causes and conditions. Okay? It's a produced thing. So each person, thing, and event arises due to its own causes, which in turn have come about in dependence on their causes. There is no discernible beginning. Now, some people, when they hear there's no discernible beginning, get frightened. It's, it's a scary thought for them. Yeah, it's much more comforting for them to think there was a creator, there was a beginning, there, you know, the creator takes care of the universe, and so on. There's a feeling of stability for those people. From Buddha's viewpoint, there's no discernible beginning, either to the continuation, the continuum of our mind, or the continuum of the material, the universe, okay? That everything is in constant change, Nothing remains the same. Okay. Now, the material universe and the mind stream have different causes and conditions. Okay. The material things depend on previous, you know, ca causes of material things. The mind depends on previous causes of moments in mind. But uh, both of them are impermanent. Now you might say, but what about the Big Bang? Yeah. Didn't the Big Bang create the universe? Well, did the Big Bang, how did the Big Bang come into existence? Yeah. There was some, some uh, what do they call them, black holes. Yeah. And isn't it? an explosion of a black hole that creates a universe or something like that. Where our physicist, tell me. 
I'll pat, pass the mic to her. <laughs> it, it's a little bit different, um, but a very <laughs> dense um, kind of, yeah, singularity, but not quite in the same sense as the black hole, because it's like even space-time itself was was changing, which isn't necessarily what's happening with a black hole. But mm. but I do agree that physics has no good explanation of what was prior to the Big Bang or really an understanding of what caused the Big Bang, but the thought would be that there would be a cause. Yeah, there would be a cause. So then the Big Bang wasn't the beginning of the universe. Something existed before it. And something existed before that, too. And we can't find an original beginning. We find different forms of matter. Yeah, they change. Yeah, But there's still that same nature of being what we call form or material or whatever. There's not a good word for it in English. Yeah, energy. Okay. Um, furthermore, okay, so things depend on causes. The causes are impermanent. Third thing, things are produced by their own unique causes, not by discordant causes. So dis, uh, discordant causes are things that do not have the capability to produce that particular result. Okay? So if you plant chili peppers and you expect to grow daisies, yeah, the chili peppers are a discordant cause for daisies. They're not going to produce daisies, no matter what you do. Okay? So things have to be produced by a cause that has the ability to produce that result. Okay? It is not the case that anything can produce anything. A daisy grows from daisy seeds, not from metal. Okay? Our bodies and minds each have their own unique causes. So the body in its continuum, yeah, the mind in its continuum, different causes. The physical body can does not cause the mind stream. Okay? The clarity and awareness of the mind does not cause the physical body. These things are associated when we're alive. The body and mind are associated. They influence each other, but they have different... Uh, streams of causality. Yeah. So this is quite important to understand. Otherwise, we remain stuck in the idea that by changing the body, we can change the consciousness. Yeah. Now, yet because they're associated, yes, if you have certain changes in the body, it changes the consciousness. But that's because of an association, not because the body is the substantial cause for the consciousness. Okay. It can be a cooperative condition, but it cannot be the substantial cause. Okay. Now, 
just looking at our idea of self. Yeah, just your idea of self. Do you feel like you are a caused phenomenon? Yeah? Do you feel like you're caused? Or do you feel like you're just there? I'm just here. Right? I'm just here. Yeah. We don't walk around every day thinking, I exist only because the causes for me exist. In fact, if we thought that, it's kind of a scary proposition, isn't it? Because it indicates if the causes for me aren't there, I'm going to disappear. And I don't want to disappear. There's great fear, great grasping at the eye. Yeah. But it's true, isn't it, that we're only here because the causes for us existed? Yeah. Did you arise out of nothing as an adult? Even as a baby? I mean, did the stork bring you? Yeah. I don't think so. As an adult, did you just, you know, here I am, a full-blown adult. And I feel like I am I. And this is me. You don't feel like there was a continuum of your mind. Or even, even though intellectually we know with our body that our body is changing, we don't feel like it's changing all the time. Even though we know it is. And we know we're aging all the time. Yeah, we know that intellectually, but we don't want to accept that fact. And when we don't look in the mirror for a while, and then suddenly you look, and it's like, who in the world is that person? Or like Prince Philip just died. So now, there, are you're Canadian, are, are you sad? You're feeling it. Yeah, you felt sad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you, you can see we have a, quite a diverse community here at the Abbey. Okay. We have a computer person, a physicist, a Red Sox fan, a Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> we have a Singaporean. We have an RN. Okay. We have a German. We have somebody who, who digs in the earth. <laughs> who plants flowers. We have somebody who can fix almost anything. We have somebody who sleeps a lot. <laughs> and we have a, a forester. Yeah, so a yeah, pretty diverse community. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but do we feel like we came into existence because of causes? Or we just, do we feel like, I've always been there? Yeah, I don't depend on causes. I'm just here. Okay, so maybe I change, but I'm still the same. Yeah, because the thing that's the same doesn't depend on causes, even though every single thing about me changes. Yeah, so you, you see, are completely contradictory 
way of thinking. And when we think, I'm only here because the causes and conditions for me existed, it's like, ugh, ugh, that's scary. And when, you know, well, okay, we'll leave that for right now. We'll come back to it later. Okay, so... Um, it is not the case that anything can produce anything. Yeah, things have their own unique causes. Causes depend on conditions to produce their results. If conditions were unnecessary, a sprout could grow in the dead of winter or in parched soil. Yeah, it would not depend on warmth and moisture to grow. But multiple causes and conditions are necessary to bring a result. So it's not sufficient just to have the substantial result, the primary thing that turns into the object. We need the, the primary cause. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, we need all the cooperative conditions for a certain result to come about. If one cooperative condition is missing, that result won't be the same, or it may not even come about. You'll have something completely different, or you'll, you know, uh, yeah, or you won't have, you'll have a result that doesn't look like that cause at all. Okay? So this figures into things like, uh, you know, 9-11 and the Twin Towers falling down. Okay? You needed every single cause and condition for that to happen, okay? So not only the terrorists, not only their training in how to fly a plane and all, okay? But you needed the, the condition that the person who um, checked them going into the airport didn't notice anything funny about them. Yeah, maybe they had that all hidden. Okay, well, their knowledge of how to fly a plane, yeah, no, nobody knew that. Okay, why were some people in the, the towers that day and other people weren't? Small conditions influenced that. We hear all sorts of stories of somebody who worked in the towers but that particular day, they didn't feel well, so they stayed home. And they're still alive. We find stories of people who didn't work in the, tar the towers, never went to them, but that particular day was interviewing for a job or having to go to check something in one of the offices, and they happened to be there when the planes hit the towers. You know, there's so many different causes and conditions that, cause, that bring about a result. And if any small thing changes, the result is going to be different in one way or another. Okay? Okay. Each cause not only produces its own results, but it also arose due to the causes that produced it. 
So you have the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause, okay? The sprout is the cause of the tree that grows from it, as well as the result of the seed from which that sprout grew, okay? If an external creator were the cause of the universe, he or she would also have to be the result of a previous cause. He would be a cause phenomena and could not exist independent of causes. Okay, so I haven't left time for questions. Venerable Tarpa asked, is the innate sense of a self-sufficient, substantially existent self the basis of the acquired notion of an Atman? Um, I think it's part of it. The, the, the inherently existent self is the one that, that uh, really supports that notion of an Atman. Okay. Um, is Buddha mind connected to sense of self as in a higher self? Okay, what, what does Buddha mind mean? The mind of a Buddha? When we're already uh, awakened? Yeah, each Buddha, um, each Buddha still uses the word I, okay? But how they think that I exists is very different than how we think our I exists, okay? A Buddha uses the word I, but feels no attachment to it and no grasping for it, and doesn't see that I as something independent of causes and conditions, doesn't see it as unitary, doesn't see it as permanent. Okay. But, you know, in the, in the sutras, the Buddha says I. Yeah, when he gives a talk or something, he's to the, to, to the Sangha, he says, I'm talking to you. So, you know, the word I exists, but that I is something that exists by being merely designated. I hope that answers the question. If it didn't, um, rephrase the question and I'll try again. Okay. Yeah, we can, one more. Does space have a cause? Okay, there's uh, two kinds of space. Yeah, the, the space that is the lack of obstructs, uh, obstructability, that space doesn't have a cause. It's a negative phenomenon. It's the lack of tangibility and obstructability. Okay, so that space doesn't have a cause. There's another space where, for example, when we... Um, Talk about the space in the room, okay? That space can be bigger, it can be larger, it can change because you can bring the walls in. You know, we're in the process of designing the Buddha hall and, you know, the space inside the different rooms changes according to where we put the walls and where we put different things. But even within a room, there's the lack of tangibility and obstructability, the permanent kind of space, yeah, that allows things to exist in it. Okay. It's a hard concept. It's a difficult one. 
Okay. So I think we have to conclude the session now.